Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. Tuesday night, President Trump addressed the nation. In our annual tradition where the president speaks from the House chamber, Trump was met with a split Congress, facing a Democratic majority House of Representatives for the first time in his presidency. In his nearly one-and-a-half-hour speech, the president made his case to America that the state of our union is strong. And in the process, he laid out big promises, he requested legislation from Congress, and he made some major claims about both his administration's accomplishments and the threats facing our country. One particular moment called attention to the partisan tensions in the room when Trump turned quickly from a boast about the economy to a claim of congressional dysfunction. An economic miracle is taking place in the United States, and the only thing that can stop it are foolish wars, politics, or ridiculous partisan investigations. He took that jab at congressional Democrats one step further. If there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. It just doesn't work that way. He warned that everyday Americans may suffer from oversight investigations into his administration. Trump, however, did lean pretty heavily at times on a message of bipartisan unity. He even offered a moment of seemingly goodwill towards Democrats when he acknowledged the record number of women serving in Congress. Don't sit yet. You're going to like this. (laughs) And exactly one century after Congress passed the constitutional amendment giving women the right to vote, we also have more women serving in Congress than at any time before. His nod to them was met with a standing ovation from the sea of Democratic Congresswomen dressed in white, honoring the suffragists who secured women's right to vote. And as State of the Unions often go, there was a moment that offered some news. Much work remains to be done, but my relationship with Kim Jong-un is a good one. Chairman Kim and I will meet again on February 27th and 28th in Vietnam. Trump revealed a date for his second summit with Kim Jong-un. He didn't mention North Korea's human rights abuses. Peppered between each of these notable moments, though, were dozens of claims of America's victories and growth under Trump's leadership. Which of those claims were accurate? We'll break it down for you. We're fact-checking Trump's State of the Union address. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. When America's political leaders speak, our team of Washington Post fact-checkers listen closely. And two of those fact-checkers, Salvador Rizzo. Hi, I'm Sal Rizzo. 
and Meg Kelly. Hi, I'm Meg Kelly. We're listening last night as Trump spoke about immigration, the economy, and foreign policy. Okay, so before we get into the specifics of what Trump said last night in his State of the Union, fact-checking major political speeches is essentially this part of our DNA now at The Washington Post. Can you guys weigh in a little bit on why we do this? So we do this because, you know, the duty of the press is to inform voters so that they can make the best decisions possible for themselves, right? And uh, when you have the president of the United States, you know, our database of false and misleading claims for Trump is up to 8,458 since he's been president. When you have such a serial prevaricator, uh, you know, uh, leading the government and giving all kinds of phony statistics and making all sorts of false claims about major geopolitical issues – that has just an obvious and important and uh, potentially, you know, kind of risky effect. Right. And to be clear, we've done this. This fact checking at The Washington Post predates President Trump and even into today fact checks many other people beyond the president. That's right. We are equal opportunity fact checkers. And we go as far back as I think 2011 is a regular thing, but it's been on and off since 2007. Okay, then let's get into some of the claims that Trump made last night, starting with claims around immigration and the wall. This is what we were all listening for. Um, It's coming on the heels of a 35-day government shutdown, shutdown over Trump's refusal to, initial refusal to concede over money for a border wall. The lawless state of our southern border is a threat to the safety, security, and financial well-being of all America. We have a moral duty to create an immigration system that protects the lives and jobs of our citizens. He he makes this argument repeatedly before the State of the Union and last night in the State of the Union that there is a national crisis at the border. Is there a crisis at the border? So a crisis is an inflection point, like a critical point in time at which something is about to really, really get awful. So I, I just point to like, okay, what's the best metric to assess whether there's a crisis? Okay, so you look at southwest border apprehensions. This is the number of people detained every year along the U.S.-Mexico border. In the year 2000, it was 1.6 million. In the year 2017, it was 300,000. That's more than 80% declining, right? Uh, What Trump never talks about is that migration from Mexico has really sort of subsided in the last few years, in the last decade or so, whereas immigrants from Central America, now that's the big phenomenon. They're coming up in waves because they're fleeing violence and poverty in their home countries. And so uh, when the president talks about, you know, a crisis, there's an aspect of it there that is sort of a crisis, a humanitarian crisis. What do you do with these tens of thousands of people? So the crisis is not necessarily at the U.S.-Mexico border. The crisis is what's going on in these Central American countries that are causing people to flee. I think that's a great way to frame it. And you, we should also keep in mind, you know, if this is something about illegal immigration, the concern is illegal immigration – There are far more people overstaying their visas, their legitimate visas who enter the country, you know, with authorization and therefore they illegally immigrate after that period expires than people who are apprehended at the border. And I think to just piggyback on what Sal was saying, when you think about apprehensions at the southwest border, which is typically the numbers that Trump is referring to, they were much higher in 2000. They were much higher earlier, um, you know, 20 years ago. And those people were coming from Mexico as opposed to from Central America. And a lot of what happened after 9-11 was increased border security and increased increased attention by ICE to sort of apprehending people along the border. Okay, so no new critical crisis that we're seeing right now. One thing that Trump did mention in his speech last night that was particularly shocking to me, it was a statistic I hadn't heard before. One in three women is sexually assaulted 
on the long journey north. Is that an accurate claim? So the president is taking it from a report by Doctors Without Borders in 2017, Mm -hmm. a reputable organization. But even they say, uh, you know, we've checked with them. Even they say that Trump is really uh, using this number uh, in service of a very misleading argument, you know, for the border wall. What Doctors Without Borders did is, you know, they interviewed, I think, 56 women. And that's how they arrived at the statistic that one in three had had some sort of, uh, you know, sexual assault or harassment. Well, not harassment, sexual assault or, you know, sexual abuse episode during the journey north. But when you start to look at these reports a little bit more in depth, not just the one from Doctors Without Borders, I would just note that a 56-person survey is not a very comprehensive statistical look at any population. And I would also note that it's so difficult to be able to get good statistics because who is really coming forward you know, who, which authorities do they trust? You know, uh, who's doing comprehensive, you know, work down there on this issue? Right. I think you're seeing a lot of the same issues in creating a statistic like this that you would see with general sort of sexual assault statistics where um, women aren't always inclined to report certain types of assaults. Um, and you also are looking at a, um, a population where you are only having access to the women you have access to. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of people who may move through the border that aren't apprehended, that don't want to discuss their situation, that may have experienced sexual violence in one place or another. So it's it's really difficult to get sort of a a clean, clear statistic um, out of any type of sexual violence, and particularly like when you're, you're moving with migration. Right. So that speaks a little bit to the journey that many of these immigrants take to get to the U.S. border. But Trump makes this claim that The border wall needs to exist because illegal immigration means more crime in our country, more criminals are entering the country, and our economy suffers. Meanwhile, working-class Americans are left to pay the price for mass illegal immigration. Reduced jobs, lower wages, overburdened schools, hospitals that are so crowded you can't get in, increased crime, and a depleted social safety net. This is much of what his entire claim for the border wall or desire for the border wall kind of hinges on, or he says it hinges on. So is that a real threat? Criminals coming into the country through the southern border and then uh, harm to our economy as a result? You know, there are some criminals who cross through the southern border. The question is, is it a statistically significant number? Mm -hmm. And that's where people are sort of you know, who experts who really drill down on the numbers, uh, experts who really take the time to study what's going on at the border, people who work from the border and study these issues, uh, they would tell you that it's not very statistically significant. Almost all research that has been conducted on this question uh, shows that um, legal or illegal immigrants, both kinds, are less likely to commit crime than the native-born population in the United States. Furthermore, the areas in which immigrants settle as groups uh, tend to have lower crime rates than areas, you know, that do not have, you know, immigrants in the same amount or proportion. Um, and so, you know, I just I have long thought that this is a very misleading argument because it's contradicted by all the research that, y- you know, you would normally look to for a question like that. And there was another part to your question that I also wanted to address. And that is, you know, OK, what would a wall really do? Mm-hmm. Again, let's go back to the actual dynamics on the border. You don't just have a bunch of single people trying to cross through the desert. You have families from Central America trying to claim asylum. How does the asylum law work? The asylum law has a very important provision in the United States. As soon as you set a foot 
in the territorial jurisdiction of the United States, you are now able to file a legally valid petition for asylum. Of course, you have to meet a bunch of criteria. Mm -hmm. But setting your foot in the country is, you know, is allowed by the law regardless of whether you cross through a legal port of entry or through the desert or what have you. A wall would have to be built inland. Right, you can't just do it on the demarcation line, right on the on the boundary itself. And so, what happens there? You can have a situation where you have a wall, and you still have tens of thousands of Central American migrants seeking asylum and filing legally cognizable petitions. So, you know, I, I think there's a there's a schism between you know uh, the rhetoric and and the way that the Trump base you know, loves that rhetoric and feeds off of it and, you know, energizes him and keeps him, you know, in a certain political position and the realities of, you know, what would a wall really do? Not much, baby. Right. And I think that another uh, thing Trump often points to with a border wall is to stop, you know, illegal drugs um, from coming through the border. But when you really drill into how drugs cross the U.S.-Mexico border, the majority of them come through legal ports of entry now. Mm -hmm. They don't sort of wander across in these SUVs, as he might like have you believe. And in addition to that, the other places that they come in is there's tunnels that exist under the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see a lot of the drug trafficking go that way. And tunnels that a wall wouldn't necessarily stop. Totally. They would just go right under it. Well, let's talk about a case of a wall that President Trump cited last night in his speech. Where walls go up, illegal crossings go way, way down. Specifically cited El Paso as an example, referencing crime in that city. Did El Paso build a wall and see a reduction in crime? So that's where he veers into false territory. Uh, A lot of the parts of this speech are immigration claims that are dubious, but they've the White House aides, I guess, have rehashed them in a way and put them in the teleprompter in a way that sort of mitigates their Pinocchios, you know, their potential Pinocchio ratings. But in this case, he really does stray into false territory because the wall in El Paso that he's referencing uh, was uh, begun to be built in mid-2008. And what happened the years before that? The president says that it was one of the most dangerous cities. In fact, it was rated one of the safest cities, uh, you know, with populations over 500,000 you know, 2005, 2006, and 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you didn't ask about it, but the president also mentioned a wall in San Diego and the effect that, that had. But the Congressional Research Service said, okay, that wall in San Diego, after that went up, it didn't have a discernible effect, mm-hmm. you know, on the number of immigrants trying to cross. So again, it's rhetoric versus reality. And, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, overlap there. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. Okay, so Trump loves to talk about the wall. Another thing that he loves to talk about and did talk about much last night was the economy and jobs in America. In just over two years since the election, we have launched an unprecedented economic boom, a boom that has rarely been seen before. There's been nothing like it. We have created 5.3 million new jobs and importantly, added 600,000 new manufacturing jobs, something which almost everyone said was impossible to do. 
But the fact is, we are just getting started. Is that an accurate representation of the jobs climate in America? Technically, yes. The numbers uh, are 5.3 million. Uh, the manufacturing number is off. It's not 600,000 um, since his election. Uh, since he was president, there have been almost 4.9 million jobs created you know, since his first month in office and 436,000 of them, you know, substantially lower than 600,000 are ma- manufacturing jobs. It's important to keep in mind that Trump uh, inherited a growing economy from President Obama and that growth has mostly continued apace. There mm-hmm. hasn't been a very significant acceleration yet. Okay. So the credit might be to policies that were put in place before he became president. I would say so. Yeah. I think when you look at most of the um, economic factors, you can see where the recession was going on, what the Obama administration did, and where those numbers started to tick upward. Mm -hmm. And they've continued along those paths um, since then. In several cases, you'll see um, even larger job numbers uh, for, I think it's all of Obama's second term than in Trump's first year. Got it. So along those lines, unemployment numbers have been pretty good during his presidency. He said that they've reached the lowest rate in half a century. Is that true? The unemployment rate um, increased to 4% in January, meaning that it was no longer at the 49-year low that had been sort of hovering around for a lot of um, the last year. Uh, It's now just at an 18-year low. So not quite half a century. So at some points during his presidency, it's been quite low, markedly low. Yes, it has has hit that like half a century low, but not currently. During his speech last night, Trump made a lot of shout outs to women, notably so to the Democratic women in Congress. And as part of that banter, he mentioned that a claim that women have filled 58 percent of the newly created jobs last year. No one has benefited more from a thriving economy than women. Can we confirm that? Are there more women in the workforce than ever before? No, essentially. There are not more women in the workforce than ever before. In, uh, if you look at the labor force participation rate, there were more women uh, working in the year 2000 than there are now. Well, in raw numbers, there are more women. Right. But that's a function of population growth. You know, right. I mean, he, Trump says this line a lot, not just about women, but about all people. Uh, and uh, we repeatedly put it in the Trump database because, you know, he's... There are more it, people, so more yeah, people work. More it's people, just kind so of like more people, Yeah, more demand, more jobs, you know, more <laughs> things to do. Moving on from the economy to the last area that we'll talk about, foreign policy. Trump covered a lot of different topics that kind of fall under this umbrella. We'll focus specifically here on the Middle East and our relationship with North Korea. Let's talk about the Middle East first. We have spent more than $7 trillion in fighting wars in the Middle East. As a candidate for president, I loudly pledged a new approach. Great nations do not fight endless wars. Seven trillion dollars in the Middle East. That seems like a tremendous number, but not implausible. Where does that number sit within the reality of of how much we've spent? That number is a bit of a mess. Mm -hmm. So to get there, he's referring to a study that came out from Brown University that combines the amount that's projected to be spent, including interest, um, for both the Iraq War and the war in Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan is in Central or South Asia, depending on how you want to define it. Mm -hmm. So can't really be qualified as the Middle East. So just already sort of off to a bad start. Um, But then when you look at the actual number itself, it's expected to surpass $7 trillion by 2056. Not anytime soon. (laughs) <laughs> and um, that's including interest on the debt that had been sustained. So there's a lot of ways that that number could change and evolve over time. 
And he also said, When I took office, ISIS controlled more than 20,000 square miles in Iraq and Syria just two years ago. Today, we have liberated virtually all of the territory from the grip of these bloodthirsty monsters. Has the U.S. reduced ISIS territory under his presidency? Um, Most definitely, yes. Also, this is a trend that began under President Obama and the and the sort of concerted effort uh, from the, the United States and other nations to, uh, you know, clamp down on ISIS and really uh, defang it. However, um, the president has been sort of hyperbolic in his assessment. Uh, he says we have liberated virtually all of that territory, but they still have a 20 square mile area. Uh, and uh, General John Votel, who was just testifying on uh, Capitol Hill earlier this week, uh, said, you know, if we're not careful in six to 12 months, they could regain territory. Mm-hmm. So there's there's enough missing context there to really make this claim worth fact checking. And a lot of that comes from the fact that there's a couple of reports that have come out saying that there's 20 to 30,000 ISIS fighters that still remain in Iraq and Syria. And when you compare that to the last time that the U.S. withdrew, um, CIA director John Brennan at the time said that there were maybe 700 people who were still affiliated with um, al-Qaeda in Iraq at the time. So it's it's a quite quite a different numbers. And to see the resurgence that came after that is... Got it. So one thing that I'm sensing from a lot of the conversation we've had is that many of the policies that exist today and have put in motion the the productivity, the successes that we've seen under the Trump administration were put in place by the Obama administration or other previous administrations. Is it is it sort of fair, although that's a subjective word, but is it fair to assign credit to Trump for allowing those processes to continue, allowing those policies to remain in place, kind of shepherding them along, um, you know, not inhibiting them in any way? Yes, I think it's fair. You know, you get credit for being the guy in office. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I covered a governor. You know, it was the same deal. You co- you you they they get the bad and they should also get the good, right? Mm-hmm. I mean. Uh, However, you know, Trump goes a little bit beyond just saying, like, you know, the ship is still sailing on course, right? I mean, he goes so far as to say, like, I did this. The tax cut did this. You know, our policies did this on energy. You know, we are doing this on foreign policy. And with Trump, it's also very much like, and no one else could have done it and no one else did it before. And so, you know, that's where, you know, we start to, you know, draw an interest and say, like, okay, well, what's really going on here? Uh, yeah, to his credit, you know, I mean, the economy, uh, you know, has continued its growth. Uh, you know, companies uh, seem to be, at least large companies seem to have favorably received, you know, the tax cut. And, you know, a lot of uh, midsize and big companies have looked favorably upon the regulatory cuts that uh, Trump has instituted. Uh, a lot of this, you know, will also take time. You know, it'll take time to see the full impact of the tax cut, although right now it seems like you know, it hasn't moved the needle much in terms of hiring or capital investment. Yeah. And just to piggyback off two points um, from what Sal was just saying, one is when Trump was campaigning, you often saw him rail against things like the unemployment rate and say it was fake numbers, et cetera. And now he's embracing essentially often slightly inflated versions of what the real numbers are. Mm-hmm. Um so I, th- I think part of his rhetoric is misleading in that sort of he created a picture that was false and now is like, oh, look, it's actually so much better. Right. Um, and the other thing that I would 
point out is when we talk about economic numbers, you know, a president can only do so much. Mm-hmm. A lot of the economy is built on what companies do and the way that other manufacturers decide to respond to economic conditions. Or, mm-hmm. And so we generally sort of have a rule of any time anyone gives a president uh credit for economic um, successes, they automatically get two Pinocchios. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's always worth taking some of his economic rhetoric with a bit of a grain of salt. Right. So one of these sort of grand claims that he made last night was that if he were not president. We would right now, in my opinion, be in a major war with North Korea. Is there any way we can find evidence to support something like that? Or is this sort of just so hyperbolic that there's no real means to fact check it? It just seems like total hyperbole to me. I mean, there was no indicia of that while Obama was president. And, um, you know, this is married to the talking point that Trump has that he's really gotten North Korea off of their nuclear weapons ambitions, which is also just bunk. I mean, you look at satellite imagery, commercial satellite imagery, they're still working on stuff. You can see it. You know, expert reports have come out saying, you know, they're still trying uh, the Washington Post has reported like, you know, oh, they're trying to fool Trump. You know, they're still they're, they're still poking around in the shadows and trying to build their weapons. So. OK, final question for you guys. Last year, Trump called for unity. This year, he did it again. He said. But we must reject the politics of revenge, resistance and retribution and embrace the boundless potential of cooperation, compromise and the common good. Since his call for unity last year, have we seen steps th- before this State of the Union that indicated that he was ready to work, uh, ready to create bipartisan unity and work across the aisle? Being fact checkers, we don't often delve into the world of um, uh, sort of political wrangling. Uh, but I think when you have had multiple government shutdowns, including one that we're just on the heels of, it's it doesn't feel like he has sort of embraced um, the ideas of unity in the past year. Look, the president spent a fair amount of time in the State of the Union talking about the First Step Act, which is criminal justice reform for, uh, especially for sentencing, harsh sentencing for uh, you know minority individuals. Uh, that was a bipartisan success. It had been a long time coming, and uh, Trump was able to get it through. Um, it was significant, but at the same time, you know, I mean, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, most of his time, I think, it's fairly described as you know, being spent as an antagonist to Democrats and, you know, trying to get this wall that they just don't want to fund because they believe it's immoral, uh, the acrimony over the shutdown. You mm-hmm. know, I, I think there's more signs of division in terms of like tangible, uh, you know, signs that you see. All right. Well, we'll see what's to come this year. Thank you guys so much for your time. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having us. We're giving you our Can He Do That episode early this week to respond to the State of the Union address. So we won't have an episode on Friday. But we'll be back next week. And with all the extra time you have between episodes now, take the time to review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the ever-hustling Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. 
What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. 